following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, friends, if you'll take your Bible this morning and turn to 2 Timothy. We made it through chapter 1, and today we're going to be entering into chapter 2 of 2 Timothy. Today we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I invite you to hear the words of our living God this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as I said, we uh, have finally gotten out of chapter 1, and we are now entering into chapter 2. And as we do so, we're going to find some recurring themes that came out of chapter 1. We'll see, once again, Paul call on Timothy to share in suffering. Once again, we'll see Paul echo his own suffering, and we will see this reminders of the gospel as this power which he was to use to make it through all the varieties of struggles and and challenges that he would face. There will once again be a call to not be ashamed of the gospel, but rather to stand firmly in it, to hold on to it, to make it primary in every aspect of life. We'll see again Paul's love and care for Timothy as his child in the faith. We'll see that in how he addresses him and these encouraging words that he gives him. However, don't worry, it's not going to just be a repeat, not just a recap of chapter 1. There's going to be also new things that we're going to see as we work through our text. However, Today, specifically, we are going to see this call to share in suffering. And as we do so, I invite you to see four overarching points for our text today. In verse 1, we will see this, what I've entitled, empowered by grace, for our first point. In verse 2, our second point will be entrust to others. In verses 3 through 6, endeavor to subject all things. And finally, in verse 7, examine the teaching. So let us just dive right into our text this morning as we look at our first point in verse 1, empowered by grace. Paul starts off, he says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul echoes 
some of what we saw in chapter 1 right off the bat. He says, you then, speaking to Timothy, my child, be strengthened. He echoes two areas in addressing Timothy. And then, uh, one, being how he addresses Timothy, but then two, encouraging Timothy to be strong. Remember, as you look back at Timothy chapter 1 and verse 2, he says to Timothy, my beloved child, remember that loving entry. How we see that Paul is writing not just to a large church body, but rather someone that he was intimately familiar with. He wasn't writing to a bunch of strangers that he didn't know, just saying, please believe on this gospel. He's writing to his protege, his child in the faith, the one that he has imparted every bit of wisdom that he can to. Paul was writing to this brother in the Lord, this one that he calls his own child in the faith. And later on in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, remember he says, For the reason I remind you, uh, for this reason I remind you to fan the flame of the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Once again, he had called already on him to be strengthened. And now we come here again in chapter 2, and he says, You then, my child, be strengthened. He uses the imperative here. Paul is giving Timothy a direct authoritative command. He says, be strengthened. It's not an offer. It's not a question. It's not a, hey, if you're interested or here's a piece of advice. He says, you be strengthened. However, something interesting about the text is that he also uses the passive tense, which indicates he was not doing this on his own. It's not that Timothy was to go out and be strengthened in the same way as far as somebody going out to do it on their own. No, he's saying, be strengthened, but by what? By the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy isn't to look for himself to find strength. He's not supposed to look inwardly and say, I can pull out the strength. Something that we see so frequently in our culture today is that you can do anything you put your mind to. You have the power within you. One of the most new age sayings you can probably find anywhere. You have the power to do anything you desire because you have it in you. God's already put it in your heart and you can do it. That's not how the scriptures tell it. We see something different, right? Paul says, you, Timothy, have nothing to stand on. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You have no reason to boast. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. If you go out there on your own without looking to Christ, you will ultimately fail. So be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. One of the questions that may come, though, is, well, what is grace that he can be strengthened by it? We frequently hear of grace and we think of the undeserved favor or receiving that which we don't, reserve, uh, don't deserve, right? So receiving the gift of righteousness as sinners, right? That's what we think of when we think of grace. And amen, that is absolutely true. God's grace is obviously present in the salvation of sinners. There is no doubt about that. Romans 3, 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift. We are justified by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. However, how is Timothy to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ? Is it strengthening just to know that he is saved? Well, yes, that is very true. I don't know how many of you, when you first were saved, 
You felt that just sense of strength, right? Because you felt finally empowered, where you had felt the weight of sin weighing you down. You felt this sense of freedom, knowing that you had been saved from the wrath of God. And so, yes, there's strength in that. However, it goes further. It is clear from other writings of Paul that grace as a term encompasses more just than just that justification, that base level. Don't get me wrong that without that base level, none of this is possible, but there is something more. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So we see that grace also comes with power and sufficiency, not just for salvation, but to meet the varying aspects of living out this Christian life. God's not only going to provide the believer with grace, the undeserved favor of salvation, which once again, thankfully he does, because if not, why are we here, right? The fact of the matter is, though, it goes beyond that. Let us not stop there and just saying, this is the end. This is the basis, and there's so much more that comes with it. It is the strength and the power to complete the race. It's this grace that then keeps you going throughout the rest of your life, sustaining you to the very end when either Christ returns or God calls you home. The grace that comes through Christ is that which allows us to then, as we will see in Paul's exhortation to Timothy, suffer as a good soldier It is the grace that allows us to be strengthened for all things that are laid before us by our God for his glory and for our good. So friends, ultimately though, it is experienced through Christ. Notice that this is not a grace that is just found anywhere. It's not laying on the street for you to pick up and use as you like. No, it's a grace that is found in Christ Jesus alone. It is through Christ that you experience this grace. And so, if you're not a believer here this morning, I invite you to consider this fact. Yes, you have received, in some sense, a a universal grace in the fact that God, one, is not taking your life. He's shown mercy towards you. And secondly, he's allowed you to have what you don't deserve right now, which is life alone. That's a blessing in and of itself. But, but, that mercy will run out. God will come. And he will judge. And you will be before him. And you will feel the wrath poured out upon you. And so, I invite you, if you have not today considered the truth of the gospel, the reality that you are in ultimate need of salvation, each and every one of you, do so. Lest you fall, lest the end comes and you find yourself living forever, an eternal punishment. This grace that he is talking about is found solely in Christ. It is grace that will empower the believer to both will and to work for God's good pleasure, as Philippians 2 says. Brothers and sisters, let us hold on to that precious truth that the grace found in Christ brings us to salvation first, but also sustains us for the long haul. So we have nothing to worry about in the sense that 
as we talked about last week, we're not going to lose the salvation. If we are truly believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will sustain you to the end. How much more can we be in awe of the Almighty God? That not only has he given us mercy, he's bestowed grace upon grace and given us everything we need to live according to his will. How amazing is that? How much more should we worship and praise the Almighty God for this grace upon grace that he bestows upon us? And so, friends, we see that God indeed does empower the believer by grace. And now, let us turn our attention to verse 2 as we look at our second point, and trust to others. So, Paul has written, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and... What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Paul is once again speaking about this gospel message, this gospel truth. The truth of Jesus Christ being the way, the truth, the life, the only means of salvation for the lost soul. This is what Timothy has heard from Paul, amongst other things. Obviously, Paul has laid out a lot. As we read in 1 Timothy, he lays out instructions for how the church is to be run, how the church ought to behave. The call upon all believers to live lives that are known as holy, characterized by holiness. However, all of that outgrowing that comes from the gospel as the basis, the gospel is the roots that feeds all these other areas. Without this gospel being at the very center of everything, then no one can experience this, these other aspects, all the other teachings that come with it. So we can say that the message here that he's talking about is this gospel message. Notice this message that Paul has shared with Timothy. Personally, he's shared it, but then also publicly he's done so. We get kind of a twofold look into the gospel ministry as a whole, into the call of all of us as believers. Are you to share the gospel privately? Yes. Any opportunity you have, share the gospel. There are instances when that will apply. You're at co- with a coworker in an office by yourselves, and they ask you a question, and man, that's a perfect time to share the gospel. And that's a private instance. However, It doesn't stop there. We're also supposed to share this witness, this message publicly before others, calling men and and women everywhere to repent and believe in Christ. We should not be ashamed, as we saw in in 2 Timothy in chapter 1, and so we should be willing to share publicly before other witnesses, calling them everywhere, every person to repent, even calling on those persons that we have shared privately with, challenging them, Encouraging them. As we know, Timothy was more reserved of an individual. Some might have said he was, like by our common definitions, an introvert in some ways. He was a little shyer, a little quieter, probably challenged a little bit because he was younger than most. And he's already called on Timothy to not be ashamed of the letter, and now he states it again by example. He says, Remember what I shared with you before many witnesses. It's almost, I don't know that that was the full intent of Paul's purpose here because he goes on to a larger larger story here. But he says, 
Remember, I shared this with you publicly. This is something that I've told you from before. And what is he supposed to do with this knowledge, this tutelage that came from Paul? And trust to faithful men who will be also able to teach others. Earlier, Paul says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Talking about this gospel message again. So this gospel that Paul had proclaimed is the gospel that was supposed to be guarded by Timothy. It was this message, this good deposit However, it doesn't stop there. Paul now calls on Timothy to entrust that deposit to other faithful men who will be able to teach others. These men were to be those who would be deemed as steadfast, loyal, men who had showed signs of the fruit of the Spirit, who showed signs of faithfulness to truth, men who were capable of fulfilling the role of elder that we saw back in 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you'll turn back there with me real quick, I'd just like to read those again for you. 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We see it says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So Paul is telling Timothy, those men that I had spoken to you about previously, these men that you should be looking for as elders, entrust them with this good deposit to then be able to teach it to others. As you've been entrusted, now entrust. As I have entrusted you, now go forth and entrust others. Bring others into this ministry with you. Paul desired that this gift that he had given to Timothy, this gift of the gospel message that then had transformed all of Timothy's life, would not die out there. Would not just die in Timothy, but would be shared to the world. That there would be others built up in the ministry to go forth and spread this good news. As we read in the high priestly prayer, right? He says, may it not just stop here with the ones that I have brought to you, but may they share it with others. May they go forth and share it out there as well. One of the most dangerous things that can happen for the truth is for it to not be shared. And for others to go into sharing it is necessary. It is necessary. One of the most dangerous things that can happen is if it's not shared. If it stays cocooned in someone, if someone takes it in and then holds it tight and never shares it, then it will never be able to flourish. It will never be able to replicate and go forth. It reminds me of that saying I'm sure many of you have heard. The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Well, we already know the Lord is going to triumph. What a glorious reality. We can get the sense of how true that statement is, right? If we don't stand up for truth, the truth of the gospel, then... 
This just continues on. These things continue to permeate. Evil continues to work and go. But then what we see is Paul tells Timothy, don't let it stop with you. And trust others. Allow this to grow. Allow this to duplicate and replicate over and over and over again until one day, now Paul wasn't thinking about Las Cruces, New Mexico, but one day in Las Cruces, New Mexico, there would be a group of believers that would come together around God's word. Paul wasn't probably thinking about us specifically, but he was thinking about the long-term, eternal continuation of this church, this gospel message. And he says, Timothy, don't let it die with you, brother. Pick up this Pick up this sword, go into battle, and bring others with you. Share the truth. Now let us not think if we bring others into sharing the truth of the gospel, everything will be perfect. For we see there were even still issues in Ephesus. In chapter 3, just a little later, in verse 8, he says, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men will also oppose the truth. So talking about men in Ephesus. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. And later on in chapter 4, he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to, uh, to suit their passions, and will turn from listening to the truth and wander off and to miss. But that wasn't just a problem for today. I think we read that sometimes when we think, Oh, in the last days down there, somebody eventually will turn from truth and turn towards various passions and various other things that are not truths, various myths. No, this was a problem in Ephesus. This has been a problem throughout church history. It's a problem in our world today, obviously. However, we can be sure that Timothy did the best to entrust this gospel to other faithful men. How do we know that? We're sitting here today. Because we are sitting here, this gospel has been shared and shared and shared throughout history and found again in the Reformation and brought forth that we could then be here today. That continual sharing and bringing others into the ministry no doubt brought blessing to the church in Ephesus and the surrounding areas. So what does this mean for the local believer and the local church today? It seems more like a command for the minister, right? For the pastor, Go forth and make other pastors. Go forth and make other elders. And yes, it does apply specifically and in a special way to those in the ministry. Men that are in the ministry, elders, pastors, are called specifically to entrust men, build them up, and continue in this calling, in this ministry. But it doesn't stop there. Let's take it to the logical conclusion. We are all a part of the Great Commission We're all called to share this gospel, to bring this gospel, to baptize the nations, right? To make disciples of all nations everywhere. In addition, we should be building up others to take the gospel and spread it as well. Brothers and sisters, let us not believe that this is solely the duty of the pastor. We're all called to build one another up. We should be training up one another for the proclamation of the gospel in our own areas, in our own circles. If you're in the work world and you have a brother here that knows how they've shared the gospel well with coworkers, may you be built up by the stories and how they have done it, how they've engaged with people. If you are in the home and you've seen a a child 
from another family come to saving faith, ask the question, how did you do that? What brought them the truth? What gospel? How did you do the storyline? Where did you go to make sure that they understood the truth of the gospel? That they might be able to come to saving knowledge. Let us build up one another. Each one of us is gifted in special ways. As we identify those gifts within one another, let us build each other up. More mature believers walking alongside younger believers, encouraging them that they might grow for this ministry, this great commission that you've been commanded to go forth in. So I encourage you, find others to share the gospel with and build one another up in the gospel. Find someone who doesn't know how to share it or who's struggling with the proclamation. Find someone who doesn't know. They know know the gospel. They know the truth. They believe it, but they don't know how to go out and tell somebody else about it. They say, how do I share that? What do I say to somebody? How do I bring it up? And for myself and others in the ministry, be looking for men who can be built up and sent out for the continuation of this preaching ministry that the Lord has set out for us. Friends, we've seen now our our first two points. God's grace empowers the believer. And we've seen that the believer is then called upon to entrust to others the teaching found in God's word. Now let us turn our attention to our third point, endeavor to subject all things. As we look at verses 3 through 6. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Paul starts off, share in suffering. Once again, that exhortation that we saw from chapter 1, remember in verse 8, he said, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Share in suffering. As we've talked about, all believers everywhere will suffer when living according to the sound words that we have found here in the gospels, in the book, this word of God. It is not just a possibility, but a promise for the true believer. Suffering will occur. It will be different between individuals. Different regions will have different experiences. But you will suffer for the sake of Christ. So how are you to do that? Yes, by the power of God. But then he also continues here. He says, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. What does that mean? What does that mean? I'm sure you've heard me say many times from this pulpit... And I will repeat it again. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a soldier for him. You have been brought into this spiritual battle against sin, Satan, and evil. We've been brought in as soldiers of Christ for the battle, for the gospel of truth, for Christ, and for righteousness. So are you a soldier? If you believe in Christ, then yes. Welcome. You're part of the battle now. It doesn't matter if you are a stay-at-home mother, a person in the workforce, a student, a retiree. doesn't matter. You are a soldier. You have been enlisted into the battle. You have a job. 
You are in the midst of an ongoing battle. You're called to pick up your arms and to fight. Ephesians chapter 6, I'm sure many of you have heard this, but Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 11, he says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We're supposed to put on this whole armor of God. Why would we put on an armor if we're not going into battle? We're going into war. One of those ways to fight, Paul says, is through suffering. A good soldier shares in suffering. Hence Paul's call on Timothy to suffer as a good soldier, right? And how does one do that? Well, Paul gives three illustrations here of how one suffers as a good soldier for Christ. Number one, he says, as a soldier, he he gives kind of an explanation of that. Two, as an athlete. And then three, as a farmer. And we'll look through those together. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. What does it mean that no soldier gets entangled with civilian pursuits? Is Paul saying that as a soldier now for Christ, you should not be involved in anything that does not pertain to this? Does that mean that the soldier just cuts ties with literally everything because he's now been enlisted in the battle? Well, no, that's not the case. The word here, though, for entangled in Greek literally means to weave, entwine, to be truly kind of immersed in. There's nothing inherently wrong with civilian pursuits. As we know, having a job is not a bad thing. There's nothing inherently wrong with even having friendships. But the soldier is not to be entwined with them. They are not to be his foremost priority. They should not take the place of his duty as a soldier. We are called to be good soldiers of Christ, which means, first and foremost, we don't get entangled in affairs or earthly matters. We're not caught up by those. Those don't hold us down or prevent us from fulfilling our ministry, fulfilling what we have been called to do. We're not consumed by the things of this earth. We don't find our purpose in them. Unlike those that are in the secular world, those that are not believers, they get consumed by these things. They get consumed by their jobs. Their jobs are everything. Their families are everything. Their homes are everything. Their cars are everything. They're so intertwined with them that literally anything that happens to any one of those areas, devastating. It's everything. Believer, that's not you. You're a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And as a good soldier, you don't get entangled with civilian pursuits. You have a job, but it's not your everything. You have a car, but you are not claimed by your car. You have a home, but that's not your life and everything. You have a family that you entrust to the Lord. And you understand that the Lord is sovereign and will care for them better than you can. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Colossians chapter 3, Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. 1 John chapter 2, Do not love this world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the things of this world, the love of the Father is not in him. What a clear message right there, right? If you love the things of this world, the love of the Father is not in you. If you're entangled and entrapped by this world, the love of the Father is not in you. 
So it is not that the soldier is not involved in anything civilian. The larger question is, what is your focus? Where is your love? What is your mind and your heart truly intertwined with? One of the many errors that are found in the Roman Catholic Church, and one of the errors that the Reformers sought to correct, was believing that the best thing was to be completely separate from the world. In the Roman Church around the time of the Reformation, you had thousands of men and women that were leaving their families and going and joining monasteries. And they were going and joining convents. And they were going and living in communities as a priest. Being completely separate from the world. There's some that they would call cloistered, meaning they were completely separate. They literally engaged with no one outside of the monastery, no one outside of the convent. They stayed to themselves. They weren't even sometimes allowed to speak to anyone. Somebody came knocking on the door and they weren't even allowed to speak with the person that came. The Roman church had been teaching this concept of vocations, which the word in and of itself means calling. When I was growing up in the Catholic Church, I frequently heard of vocations. Vocation directors were well-known. There was a specific person within each diocese that was known as the director of vocations. It was a priest who would then be looking for possible priests and saying, I think you'd be a good one for the priesthood. Let me talk, about, talk to you about that. Each monastery and each convent has vocations directors who would be looking for the next monk or the next nun to come and join them. These individuals would point people out and say, you would be good for religious life. And then the church basically took that and said, there's two kind of separating things. There's vocations being religious, and then there's jobs. You could be religious, be separate from the world, be better than the world, or you could, I guess, have a job. That was how the message is sold. I've heard it numerous times myself. Don't you want to be set apart? Don't you want to do something special? In the Catholic Church, they have sacraments, right? And the sac- one of the sacraments is religious life. And the only way to get religious life is if you're in a ministry like that. So if you're trying to collect all of your sacraments, because that's apparently supposed to make you more holy, then you join the religious life. It's the only way that it was possible. So in conclusion, what they were sending as a message and what they were proclaiming as truth was that there was more valuable roles and less valuable roles. Something that was better and something that was lesser. It was better to pursue life as a monk or a nun or a priest than as a farmer. It was more valuable to live life in solitude, being focused solely around these brothers or these sisters in, the, in this community and the word and singing than it was to be in the world taking care of business as a businessman tending to your family but thankfully reformers like john calvin denied this he was one of the first that argued that religious were not the only calling vocation as a word didn't just mean religious life vocation was what you as individuals were called to do by god that was your ministry that was your place He argued for three aspects of vocation. All life is religious life. The gospel is for all of life. God saves the whole man, not just a part of him, not just his job. God saves everything. And work has inherent dignity. 
There's something special just about working. So this means that we all have a vocation and we are all soldiers. God has enlisted us as believers into his army to serve him in all areas of our lives. So you don't get to just put on the soldier and say, I'm going to go live now in a convent or in a monastery. He says, no, go out into the world as a soldier, living out your calling. So are you a stay-at-home mom? You have a vocation. You are called to serve God faithfully in your role. If you're in the workforce, once again, you have a vocation. You have a job. You have something that God has placed you in. You are called to do so well to serve God faithfully in your role. Are you a retiree? You have a vocation. You are called to serve God faithfully in your role. It will look different from the mom or from the working person, but you have a responsibility. You have something that you are to do. From Ligonier, there was an article that was written about living your vocation. And they kind of laid out uh, five areas here, and I just want want to share these with you. What this looks like practically to live out your vocation. Focus on the kingdom. Once again, we see as the soldier is called to be not entangled with civilian pursuits, but to have a main focus, right? His main focus being, I desire to honor the one who enlisted me. Wherever I'm at, I desire to honor him. So focus on the kingdom. How do I bring God the most glory? Number two, think transformationally. Push the status quo. Challenge things. Encourage growth within yourself and within others. Work Christianly. Work as one who is characterized as a Christian, characterized by being the one who is known as a believer. Regard the community. Think of, the, uh, think of others and work towards the betterment of others and live holistically. Don't be twisted up in these, well, this is separate from this and this over here isn't as good as this. No, think holistically. Your whole life has been redeemed by Christ. And so your whole life needs to be transformed to bring Him glory, to bring Him honor. A believer's whole goal is to honor the one who enlisted us, Christ. The believer's whole duty is to bring Him honor, to serve Him well, to take this good deposit that's been entrusted to us and proclaim it. So I ask you as a believer, what is your goal? If it is truly to bring God honor and glory, as it should be, then bring everything into submission. Bring everything in submission to that goal. How do you tend to your homes? How do you tend to your families? How do you perform at your job? How do you speak to one another? How do you use your time? How do you enjoy food? Every aspect, everything should be about bringing it into submission for God's glory. Saying that, Lord, I desire most to glorify you in every aspect. And if your main goal is not God's glory, then I invite you to consider, one, if you're saved. Two, if you've concluded that you are, it sounds like your goals need to be realigned. Moving on to our second point, he says an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. 
athletes. This was a common illustration of Paul. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I find myself, or I myself should be disqualified. Philippians chapter 3, I press on toward the goal for the prize, right? Once again, competition, athletic competition of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Greek athletes athletes in the Olympiad at this time would participate in a 10-month training program. And then they would have to swear that they had completed it prior to competition. It was something that was a rule. It was a basis of the competition. It was almost like, you've done what you need to do to get here, one. And two, you also haven't been cheating. It was a prerequisite for the competition. You can't just show up, right? It's just like our Olympics today, which are the very same thing. Our Olympics today, I can't just go out and say, I think I'm going to run the 400 meter. One, probably because I'd lose. But two, because... That's not how it works. You have to win certain things to get to the Olympics. You have to run certain races to get to the Boston Marathon. You have to do certain things to compete. Similarly, you can't do that in the Christian life. There's a prerequisite. You must be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If not, then you are completely running in a separate race. You're not even on the same playing field anymore. You're running down that wide path that leads to destruction while... The believer is running down the narrow path that leads to salvation. Additionally, there are expectations that come with the Christian life. We're called to put to death sin, to pursue holiness, to seek to glorify God. Similarly to an athlete who has put in all the effort and the sweat to achieve the goal of eating the right foods, trained at the right times, rested enough, done all of the things to finish the race well. We are called to do the same things. We are called to put in the effort to finish the race. We can't just stumble our way through this. We first must be saved and then we must be putting our lives once again into this subjection to submission. As we desire to bring God honor and glory. To play by the rules that he has set out for us. Means walking according to God's word. We're actively to be pursuing holiness by putting to death sin. We are called to share the gospel. All of these things are of utmost necessity as a believer. Not as legalists, not as people who are trying to check off the boxes, but as ones who desire to bring God glory. Not saying like we can't eat food because, oh, I I don't want to eat too much. God said, don't be this, don't be that. But saying, Lord, I'm going to give you all glory as I enjoy this meal that you provided me. I know you say that I need to read your word. Lord, I'm going to read your word and I'm going to study it as best that I can. I may not be able to spend every waking minute of every waking day, but I will do what I can to read your word and to know you and to love you and cherish you all the more. Notice again that the athlete, like the soldier, has a singular focus. His goal is to win the prize. And to do so, he does what is necessary. He makes the appropriate sacrifices, competes according to the rules lest he is disqualified. Our third point that Paul gives us to look at is the farmer. He says, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. 
Not sure how many of you grew up here in farms or have family members that are farmers, but it's not an easy task. I know that country songs today seem to make it like a fun thing. You get up on your tractor, you got your iced tea in hand, you just ride around all day, right? It sounds great, the sun, the wind, it's a beautiful day, the grass is out there. It seems so nice, right? It's not farming. Farming is much harder work. It's not as simple as hopping up on the tractor. It's tedious. It's laborious. It's challenging. I, uh, I have a friend who grew up in Iowa, and he talks a lot about his family as farmers. And when it's harvest season, when it's planting season, it's every minute counts. Every second counts. We don't have time to take away from the farm because if we do that, we lose everything. If I don't plant on time, the crops won't grow. If I don't harvest on time, it might go bad. So there's this process and there's this pattern and there's watering that needs to occur and there's efforts that need to be put in. And even in the off season, you're, toil- you're toiling the, the sand and you're, you're going through and you're adding nutrients to make sure that you can grow again the next year because your family and your livelihood relies on this farm. Everything is working towards the goal of getting the harvest done year by year. Similarly, but in many different ways, it was difficult for a farmer in the time when Paul is writing this. Thankfully, we do have tractors today, but at that time they didn't. But they had similar problems, right? They had early and long hours. Every minute counted. Nothing could be wasted. Constant work and and labor, plowing and sowing and pruning and harvesting and storing crops. There were struggles. There was pests that would come in. There was disease and there was weather changes that couldn't be predicted. There was patience that would be tested. It's not a fast process to grow things. It's a lot of work. It's time consumptive. And at times it was tedious. Doing the same repetitive process as you picked off the grain. As you went and you cut away at things. It was a tedious process of work. It's an interesting thought in reference to the Christian life. Long hours, constant work and labor, struggles, trials, patience, sometimes tedious tasks as you continue to press towards the goal. It's the same for every believer and especially for the Christian minister, those that are trying to shepherd a flock. As they put in the long hours, as they work constantly, as they labor and struggle They try and find patience as they deal with people that seem to not be understanding or pushing against everything that is said. Sometimes tedious tasks of going over the same concept over and over and over again, hoping that at some point it will stick. But notice the farmer has a singular purpose. He has a goal in mind. It's to reap that harvest that he might have the first fruits of his crop. He is diligently working towards the end, reaping the benefits of his toil. His focus is set. Everything revolves around meeting that goal, knowing that his very livelihood, the livelihood of his family, depends on his work. How applicable for us as believers? How much focus should we put as we pursue our end goal, knowing that we will reap not just a harvest, Not just some grain to eat, but we will reap the most amazing harvest as we enter into the eternal presence of God. We don't just have a meal to look forward 
2, we have something even more special. We have to look forward to this end where we get united with God again and we get to enjoy him forever. We are in his glory nonstop. So it seems that Paul uses these illustrations to bring to mind the reality of having this central focus. As we think about suffering as a good soldier, what does that look like? It's desiring to bring God honor and glory. Having an end goal in mind, knowing that as you're suffering, you're not suffering for your own sake. You're suffering because this is part of God's plan for his glory and for your good. It is to be used for his purposes, not for yours. So what is your central focus? If you're a believer, the answer should be to bring glory to God. Well, I know that we will all fail because we fall into sin. We're going to fail to bring God glory in every second of every day. I know it, and that's okay. It's okay. It's not, it shouldn't be our end. We shouldn't stop there and say, well, Lord, I give up because I'll never do it perfectly. We should continue to pursue, but we also realize that we'll never do it perfectly. We should aim for it, though. As the soldier aims to win the battle and to bring his commander honor, as the athlete strives to win the trophy, as the farmer longs to gather the first fruits for him and his family, may we strive to glorify God in every aspect of our lives. May every aspect of our lives be brought into submission under this goal, this goal to bring God glory. And I mean every aspect. Once again, I don't want to get confused into thinking that there's some aspects that should be and some that shouldn't be. If there's anything that isn't, we need to ask, why is it here? We need to bring all aspects into submission under the goal. Enjoying the many gifts that God has lovingly given us. Working diligently in our tasks. Sharing the gospel to our families, friends, co-workers, strangers. Caring for our homes and families. All of these are ways in which we can and should bring him honor and glory. Do all these things to his glory. Friends, once again, every aspect. Let us bring all of it under submission to our desire to glorify God. May everything that we do be about his glory. It doesn't mean that we get to just leave everything or turn away from our lives. No, we step into our lives having been transformed in our minds and our view of everything that we might then bring glory as we go out, as we do our jobs, we do them well, as we tend to our families, we do so well, as we care for our homes, we care for them well. So brothers and sisters, we have been, we have seen that we are empowered by grace. We are called to entrust others this gospel of grace. We have seen that we are to endeavor to subject all things under our end goal, namely God's glory. Now let us turn our attention to the final verse as we look at examine the teaching. Rereading verse 7, think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think over, consider. The Greek word is only found here in the New Testament. It's to be perceiving clearly, carefully considering, carefully thinking over, understanding fully. Paul is saying this as an imperative. He is speaking a command. He's not suggesting that this might be good advice again. Not just like we had talked about earlier, right? Where he says, 
um, be strengthened. It wasn't an advice. This is a command. Think. Think. Consider this. He's telling Timothy what to do. How is Timothy to do this? And how are we to follow suit? We search the word. We know the word. We look inwardly, not for truth, but for areas that need to be brought under the authority of God. We should ask ourselves, if we bring our lives in all aspects under humble submission to God, is every aspect of our life being brought into humble submission under God? If not, we need to work towards that. That should be our aim. That should be our goal. And he says, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. It's as if Paul is saying to Timothy, think about everything. Think about what I've told you. Think about what you've read. Think about all that you have gathered from your grandmother, from your mother, from the times that I've spent with you. Consider it carefully. Search yourself. And ask, are you keeping in step with these things? Then you can know that the Lord will give you understanding. He will impart the wisdom and the insight that you need as you seek victory over sin, as you seek to pursue God's glory in every area of your life. So as we close today, I echo our brother Paul here in saying, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Maintain focus as a soldier desiring to bring honor to the one who has enlisted you. Follow the rules as an athlete desiring to win the competition and be hardworking as a farmer seeking to gather the fruit of his labor. Consider these things. Search your heart. If you're not living as one who has the primary desire of God's glory in every aspect, then it is time that you realign and ask, how, Lord, do I do this? Think over these things carefully, knowing that the Lord will give you understanding in everything. As believers, we are soldiers that will indeed suffer for Christ. However, we can be encouraged that God's grace is sufficient to empower us to go forth. And so, with that in mind, may we go forth into the world making disciples of all nations, knowing that the gospel is the only means of salvation. May we submit our lives wholly and solely to the one who saves, that we might finish this race well, and one day be united once again with the Father in heaven, along our brother Paul and our brother Timothy, knowing that we've finished the race well, that we've kept the faith. And let us pray.